0: This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor of Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Well, dear listeners, I I must confess today that I, I feel much like Cassandra on the day the Trojan horse entered her beloved city, and every prediction she had made, to which no one had paid any attention whatsoever, came horribly true. So I I got to tell you that I wrote about a year ago the following for education next. Students pay a high price when governments place public health concerns above educational ones only with a full understanding of the great costs of staying closed will policymakers be able to make a proper decision about whether those costs outweigh the health costs of opening. So. I cite in that piece that I wrote a year ago uh, all the evidence that makes one believe that the costs are going to be great. Closing schools, I said, will harm children's academic performance. Online learning is going to be no uh, adequate substitute for classroom instruction. Masks and distancing rules are going to impede classroom learning. Social and emotional toll on children will be high physical health of children will be placed at risk, gaps in learning between advantaged and disadvantaged will widen and the country's human capital will falter. Well, I think uh, we have a report that's just been issued by the McKinsey uh, and Company uh, entitled COVID-19 in education, the lingering effects of unfinished learning that pretty much supports every single one of those Uh, predictions uh, which, uh, in my view, have come as true as Cassandra's. So to discuss the McKinsey Report, I have with me today uh, Emma Dorn, the report's first-named author. And I'm very grateful to you, Emma, for joining me on the Education Exchange today.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So Emma, you report that students finishing school this spring are five months behind what students normally achieve a year in math and four months in reading. So um, is, this, is this a lot, how, how what is a month of learning? How, how do you measure that? And uh, yeah, how would you characterize that?
1: Sure, so, so we took a pulse at the end of the school year. And what we did is we looked at how students perform in an average year, and then we can compare how they performed this year. And what we found is, is that indeed students were about five months behind in math and four months behind in reading where they they would have been compared to previous historical data. And we did that based upon an average of a 10 month school year. And obviously that number is is arbitrary but the reality is is what that means is kids are about half a year behind in math. Uh, and, And so they've only learned half of the learning that they would normally learn in a school year. And so, you know, take a second grader going into third grade that means they've only learned about half of the second grade content, and they're going to be entering third grade this fall, trying to access third grade content with without some of those building blocks. And, and that's pretty sobering and, and pretty worrying.
0: Well, this sounds pretty much on target, but can you be sure that the kids are similar to the ones a year ago? How do, how do you try to match them to the kids a year ago?
1: Sure. So I can deep dive a little bit into the methodology. So what we did is we we looked at the Curriculum Associates uh, iReady data from the formative assessments that they take every year in uh, the fall, the winter, and the spring. And we compared uh, the spring data from uh, from this year to spring data for match students, for similar students in similar schools uh, across 2017 to 2019 by grade and by subject.
0: So do you match them on the basis of their Family background, their demographic characteristics, or their test score performance, or what do you what do you match them on?
1: So actually, curriculum associates did the matching, and and they matched them based on uh, a mixture of uh, race and uh, income uh, at the school level um, to make sure that we were looking at, at at like for like. The other thing we did to make sure that we were we were taking a like for like comparison is we only looked at students who were taking assessments actually in school. And this is really important because we wanted to control for the assessment environment. We wanted to actually understand what was the impact on on the learning, uh, not on on assessment environments. And so we looked at this 1.6 million students who had taken the assessment in school this year uh, and compared those to similar students who had taken in school assessments uh, between 2017 and and 2019.
0: Well, that makes sense to me. The problem that you run into though is that I think you had 1.6 million students in your study, which is a pretty nice fat number, but they uh, but they are the ones who showed up for yep. school on that day. And you don't have in that analysis all of those who weren't at school, who are probably still learning online, who might've been the ones that suffered the most. Isn't that, isn't yep. your assessment probably as optimistic as anyone could be?
1: Yeah, so we actually do say in the report that our assessment is probably an underestimate of the extent of unfinished learning. And the reality is, is that no one right now knows what the impact has been on kids who haven't yet managed to get back into school buildings. And, and we probably won't know that until this fall as pretty much most students are returning to school buildings this fall and there will be similar formative and uh, assessments rolled out. And, and then we will begin to understand that.
0: So, so you may go back into to looking at it again when more hopefully more kids are in school.
1: We will, and and you know, as we've been doing this analysis, we did analysis last fall, and, and we uh, put a report out in the winter, and now on in the spring. Every time we do this, we get a better sense, and really, this last report that we just released is the best sense we know right now. And as more data comes out, we will know more.
0: So, the Education Next poll uh, that was conducted last November. Uh, we asked parents uh, how their kids were learning and 53% said they were learning entirely online. 19% said they were in the hybrid condition, sometimes at school, sometimes online. And then uh, only 28% said they were in school full-time in person. Now that was in November, but we, we get, you know, better results by springtime, but uh, still, uh, a lot of students were still online, uh, even toward the end of the school year. So um, do you think that's the big driving factor here, just that so many students were learning online?
1: I mean, I think that you have to separate a little bit the the modality of learning and, and the circumstances of the pandemic. And so I, I think it's true that historically, if you look at academic studies, uh, students who have been in virtual charter schools have underperformed matched students who are in Uh, in-person schools. But those students tend to be a very specific population. Uh, And in addition, there are some virtual charter schools who actually do manage to provide as good uh, an education. I think what happened in the pandemic is two things. One is there was an initial scramble. No one understandably was prepared for this. Schools shut almost overnight and teachers who had been teaching in person for their whole lives and districts who had their whole infrastructure set up to teach in person went online overnight. And so the type of online learning that was rolled out, especially in the spring, was not the best practice virtual learning, um, just by nature of the circumstance. I, I think what we do see, and this is, is good news, is that as we move into the school year of the 2020 to 2021 school year, we see that things actually improved. And we were able to track this a little bit because we did look at the fall assessments and then again at the spring assessments. Now, there's a big caveat here that, as you said, more kids were coming back into school over this time. And so the results are muddied a little bit by potentially different subsets of students. But what we saw in the spring is the students that were assessed basically didn't learn anything in math between March, 2020 and May, 2020. Um, They flatlined or maybe lost a little bit of learning. Whereas between September, 2020 and, and the end of the 2020 to 21 school year, they were learning. They just weren't learning as fast as they would have done otherwise. Uh, And so I think that initial response um, really speaks to the fact that this was an uh, unprecedented experience, right?
0: Yeah, but I still think you're letting the digital learning strategy a little bit off the hook there, because, you know, yes, they were learning a little bit more compared to no learning at all. They still were way behind what they should have been based on historical patterns.
1: No, and I, I think that's absolutely true. I also think that to be honest, even the historical patterns weren't where we wanted to be, right? And so though uh, the in-person learning historically may not have been uh, where we wanted it to be, I think the experience of hybrid and virtual learning has has lagged that, and, and that's why we're seeing that kids are behind. Um, and, and I do think there's much that we, we can do, though, to, to support kids now, and I don't think that um, we should totally write off technology in that process. Uh, but I think being having it used in partnership with teachers in a schooling environment is is probably going to be more effective for most students than um, having them isolated at home.
0: No, I, I agree yes. with you. We shouldn't probably make pronouncements about technology uh, on the basis of the of this particular experience. It is so unusual. But I also am concerned about the use of social distancing and masking. I wrote about that a year ago, and I I still remain concerned because that's that may be right back in this in the mix coming this fall because people think that you know okay so we can put the masks on kids they don't mind that but i'm not at all sure that you can teach kids effectively if the teacher is wearing a mask and the children are wearing masks um i i, I find it very difficult to understand people now admittedly my ears aren't as good as yours but I still think that uh, it's really can be very difficult to get the full nuances of what a teacher has to say if the teacher is wearing a mask.
1: I mean, I think what you're raising is a broader point that it's not just virtual learning that is to blame for some of these delays. There's a ton of other factors as well. Um, In fact, one of the things we've done in a previous report is we actually looked at teacher perceptions of learning loss in different countries. And what we found is, is that even countries that didn't shut down for very long at all. If you look at um, Australia or France, for example, it had somewhere around eight weeks of shutdown, some parts of Australia only a couple of weeks and teachers there were still saying that students were a couple of months behind. And so there's a lot going on both in the classroom environment, but frankly, in the home environment, students have been traumatized by the pandemic. Some have lost family members, others have had family members lose jobs. And so I think both in the the sizing of the problem we need to take that into account but also in thinking about solutions we need to take that into account it's not going to be enough just to get kids back into the classroom we also have to deal with the broader mental health and social emotional impacts that the pandemic have had on kids
0: yeah you know education next asked uh, parents uh if they felt their child's uh, were being affected socially emotionally and even physically and uh, we thought Uh, more concerned about that than we got even with the academic loss. And I think you did the same thing. You looked at parents and I think your questions are a little different than ours. So they aren't sort of exactly the same, but the the storyline is pretty much the same. Wouldn't you say that parents are reporting as much of a serious problem in the social emotional dimension as the academic one?
1: No, absolutely. We did a survey of 16,000 parents across all 50 states and we found that about 35% of parents were very or extremely worried about their students' mental health. That's, that's over a third. Uh, and 80% had some worry. And, and we also asked parents, how did that change kind of prior to the pandemic versus afterwards? And we saw that parents were reporting that their children were more likely to suffer from actual mental health conditions like anxiety and depression, but also from just behavior, behaviors that were really worrying them, social withdrawal, self-isolation lethargy if I look at my own kids I have a 14 year old um an 11 year old and an eight year old and my middle one who's a boy he's normally super active he's you know playing baseball and basketball and soccer um and in the initial shutdowns of the spring would be like come and shoot some hoops for me and he's just like I can't be bothered I just don't want to really leave my bed and I think that that's heartbreaking and a lot of parents saw that for their kids um as as the pandemic hit and as the kids became more socially isolated.
0: Yes, as it happened with my grandchildren, one, uh, one of my grandchildren uh, was switched from uh, a public school, which had shut down completely uh, in the spring, as all schools were, but then in the fall was going to remain shut down, so he we went to a private school. And it was amazing to see how that young boy uh, was transformed by the fact that he was back in school, relating to his classmates, having a teacher, and things were not normal, but they were a lot better than they had been previously. So yeah, the, the cost socially and emotionally you can see in your own personal lives as well as in the data that we're looking at here.
1: And and I think that, that the cost of the pandemic on, on students' mental health is, is affecting their engagement with school as well. One of the other findings from our survey that was really sobering to me is there was a 12 percentage point increase. In reported chronic absenteeism by parents, parents saying their kids had been absent for uh, from 15 days or more uh, in the school year, uh, and what was really worrying is 40% of those parents said their kids really hadn't attended any school at all. Uh, and and so if you think about that, usually chronic absenteeism, you know, in, in academic studies, I'm sure you're well aware, is very linked with later dropouts from high school. And so one of the things we're really worried and is that there's gonna be a lot of students who might drop out of school altogether, and, and that's really gonna impact their lives, their ability to support a family, their ability to find a job that fulfills them. Uh, and as you know, as well, a lot of academic studies have linked um, educational attainment not just to economic outcomes, but to health outcomes as well in the long run. Um, and so that's that's a really big worry for me as well.
0: Well, you actually talk about the long run and, and you estimate, uh, if, if these absent if these absenteeism rates and if these uh, learning losses translate into uh, long-term outcomes, there's gonna be a huge deficit uh, for the country as a whole in terms of the incomes these young people will be able to generate uh, in the future. What, what's the size of the impact that you estimated?
1: Sure, so what we looked at is we looked at historical links between uh, attainment and earnings. And what we found is, is that uh, the unfinished learning due to the pandemic could cost students somewhere between forty-nine dollars and $61,000 in, in lifetime earnings. And, and again, that's probably an underestimate because that assumes that the amount of learning that was lost during the pandemic just stays the same as they continue. Uh, what we found from historical studies is actually that tends to compound over time. Um, so, you know, in Pakistan, which is one of the most famous cases, schools closed down for 14 weeks. And four years later, researchers came back and they found that students were actually a year and a half behind where they would have been otherwise in in those affected uh, regions. Um, And we also see this in in U.S. evidence where kids who aren't able to learn to read by third grade, they're not able to read to learn thereafter. Uh, And and so for some kids, that long-term impact on earnings could be much more
0: but you uh, actually use this word unfinished learning and that that's a new word for me, but I just call it learning loss because unfinished means sort of like, well, I didn't finish my dinner, but I think, <laughs> but you know, something that's lost cannot be uh, recouped. And so I'm wondering if that's, which is it, which is it? Is it unfinished or is it lost?
1: So maybe I'm more optimistic than you are. I think that, um, there's two reasons we use this term "unfinished learning. The first is that for many students, they didn't actually go backwards. They did continue to learn. They just didn't learn as fast as they would have done. Now, that is critically important as, as we've been talking about.
0: Well, developmentally, you will just learn more, right? We, we yes. all learn more every day just because we're getting older uh, and we've had more experiences and you learn how to read in places other than in school. So the fact that you're seeing a little progress doesn't necessarily thrill me that, you know, not to worry. doesn't. No, to not I am
1: worried. worried. Don't believe me, I'm worried. But I also I do have hope. And the other reason I have hope is that I think some of this learning can be caught up. I think we can help students accelerate. And I think it's a, a choice we make. Uh, as as a country into how are we gonna invest in these students? Achievement gaps are nothing new. We've had significant achievement gaps in our society fueled by underlying opportunity gaps for, for decades if not centuries. And I think we now do have a moment where we can stand back and say, it's time to really support those students who need it most. And so one of the sources of hope I have is that the federal government has invested this $200 billion over the next three years to support students in recovering and finishing their learning, but also recovering from some of the mental health and, and social emotional impacts that the pandemic has wrought.
0: Yes, we haven't talked enough about the differentials across students in the learning loss that took place. Yep. And I think that's some of the most important uh, results that you uh, have in your report uh, I, what what is the difference between the learning loss for white students and black students, for example?
1: Yeah so uh, another thing that that really worries me is how these effects are not equitable and they they're really exacerbating and widening some of the pre-existing opportunity gaps we have in, in this country. So um we weren't actually able to get student level data for privacy reasons. Curriculum Associates doesn't go and ask students their their race and their income and you know you can't really ask a second grader their, their income. But what so what we did instead is we looked at at school demographics and what we found is is that students that were in majority black and Hispanic schools uh, were about six months behind in math versus four months for students in majority white schools. And and actually students in low income schools suffered even worse and they were ended up the school year about seven months behind uh, in in mathematics. And that then plays forwards into some of the income projections. And so if you think about the impact on income uh, that could be white students might see their lifetime earnings reduced by maybe 1.4%, but that could be as much as 2.4% for for black students.
0: So one thing I noticed was that rural students were suffering less of a learning loss than those in in suburban areas even. So what do you think might be the
1: reason for that? You know, we were also interested by that finding. And though the differential wasn't as great as the the income or the race differential, it it was meaningful students in, in rural areas we were about three months behind in reading versus about four months for for urban areas and about four months behind in math versus five months for for urban areas. Uh, And I think there could be a a range of reasons here, but the one that obviously jumps to mind is that students in many rural areas were able to return to in-person learning uh, sooner than many students in in urban areas. Often classrooms were larger, there was more potential to hold classrooms outside uh, in very dense urban areas, that was that was a lot more difficult.
0: So uh, that brings up the question of red states versus blue states. We know from other data that the red states opened up much more quickly than the blue states did. Did you look at the differences across state lines and whether or not the, uh, the more the greater willingness to open schools in red states, turned? did that have any consequences?
1: So we weren't actually able to cut the data by state. Um, though curriculum associate does uh, assess students in over 40 states, the subset of students that they assess in each state is slightly different. Uh, And so we weren't able to fully control in a way that we felt comfortable making statistically significant statements around around state level uh, impacts. And of course, this year, many of the state assessments were also not run. And so I think it's going to be probably next spring before we have a really good sense of uh, a state level uh, assessment of student learning.
0: So that's just going to be a puzzle that we're going to have to uh, live with for a little bit uh, longer. Uh, so you mentioned that the federal government is going to put a lot of extra cash into education, is doing so right now, and it's going to continue to do so over the next couple, three years. And uh, you're hopeful that that will actually sort of close some of these gaps and, and uh, help students finish, but There's a lot of research out there by Hanushek and Wussman, among others, who you quote in your Mm -hmm. study, that shows that money doesn't have such a big impact, that unless you spend it well, you can't count on just throwing more money at the problem is going to solve it.
1: Yeah, so I think the really important caveat there is the unless you spend it well. Um, And so this is a really significant amount of money, Um, the $200 billion over three years, you know, if you compare that to the approximately 750 billion spent annually on public schooling, it, it's a big boost. Uh, and I do think that there are ways to spend this that will make a significant difference and help students accelerate. And there's a couple of things that I think are really important. Um, I think learning recovery has been talked about a lot, and this is critically important. Uh, some of the approaches that have been shown to have very large effect sizes are high dosage tutoring. Acceleration academies over vacation breaks, for example. But I think another thing that's going to be really important is actually just getting kids back into an engagement with learning, especially when I look at the chronic absenteeism rates and the concerns um, around enrollment drops. I think one of the things that maybe has been underemphasized in the debate is the importance of just re engaging students, reaching out to them one on one. Uh, and getting students engaged into effective learning environments again.
0: Well, maybe if we put up a, a lot of tutorials and do a lot of uh, one-on-one engagements, that, that I, I certainly agree with you that there's nothing like one-on-one instruction. It's, it's it, you can't learn the piano without one-on-one instruction, and you can't play tennis without it. I know that personally. So I, I just uh, honestly believe that that's the most effective. But I'm not at all sure that schools are going to be doing that. I think schools are going to go be going back and doing what they have been doing. That's what institutions do. They get locked into the standard operating procedures they've always followed. So I don't really, I'm not really quite convinced that the resources, and I agree with you, there are enormous new resources, that there's been enough thought by school leadership as to how we're gonna make those resources effective.
1: And I think it's also, to be honest, is something we're gonna have to continue to learn. One thing about this money that has been put towards education is it's over the next three years. And so I think that there is opportunity to learn and adjust. And as you know, after the first year, uh, which states and which districts have been successful in supporting students and accelerating their learning? What are some of the innovations that could be scaled? Uh, And I do think this is an opportunity to be looking not only at rolling out evidence-based approaches, but also in in looking to generate more evidence in, in what does work in education and then roll that out in, in the subsequent years.
0: Well, thank you for your optimism, Emma, and especially thank you for doing such a great report uh, for, for bringing this uh, information that you've been able to uh, uh, gather together and uh, bring it to uh, our attention because the topic you addressed is is incredibly important and the work that you've done is is very valuable so thank you for joining me on the education exchange
1: thank you it's been an honor
0: i have been speaking with emma dorn the first named author of a report just issued by mckinsey and company entitled "Covid 19 and education the lingering effects of unfinished learning i am paul peterson this is the education exchange please join me every monday at noon eastern time when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.